couple of months ago, Megan and I had the chance, while we were away on holiday, to visit the Vatican Museum in the city of Rome. And one of the paintings we saw as we were taken on a tour around the museum was this one. It's the Transfiguration painted by Raphael. Now, this isn't my photo. I'll show you my photo in a moment or so. And this is a fascinating painting in its own right. But I'm not showing it to you this morning because of what's in the painting. I'm putting it up on the screen because later on in our tour, we went into St. Peter's Basilica. And in that uh, chapel or church, we saw this. Now, it's a little bit darker, but it's the same picture, right? Although, actually, there's something very different about it. Anyone have any ideas what the difference is between the first picture I showed you and the second one, apart from the very bad lighting and the candles in front of it? Any idea? Well, let me put them side by side. The one on your left is my blurry photo of the original painting. The one on your right is the second one that we saw. It's a copy of the original. But the second one is not a painting. It's a mosaic. It's made up of thousands of little tiles as a copy of the original. And of course, from a distance, you just can't tell that. The tiles blend together perfectly. It looks just like a painting. But if I had run up to the mosaic before the guards tackled me and carried me out, if I had run up and pressed my nose against it, it would have looked just like a jumble of little colored tiles. The significance of each individual tile is only seen by stepping back and looking at the whole mosaic. Now, the reason I'm showing you this is not because I want to show off my holiday pictures. You can see that my holiday pictures aren't very good. I'm showing you this because this morning we come to the part of Luke's gospel that deals with the empty tomb. The empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus are things that people often have trouble with. Non-believers who are attracted to Christianity may well choke on the idea of the resurrection. They struggle to accept it. And equally, Christians may well have times of doubt. We understand that the resurrection is crucial. We accept the Apostle Paul's point when he says that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. We accept that. We know that the resurrection is central to our faith. But we are surrounded by skeptics. People rubbish the very idea. And sometimes, don't we, we stumble over this ourselves. So whichever category we fall into, either unbeliever or believer with occasional doubts, our passage this morning gives us a good deal of help. Much of our difficulty with the empty tomb comes from the fact that we tend to focus in on it. Just like we're pressing our noses up to a mosaic. But our passage helps us by causing us to step back from this single tile that's the empty tomb. Then our passage helps us look at the wider mosaic that's found around the empty tomb. 
Or if I put it another way, our passage helps us to see the empty tomb in its wider context. And that wider context is what God has done and said to explain the empty tomb. When we look at the empty tomb in that context, it fits, it blends in, it makes sense. It's not just some random fact that we're supposed to blindly accept. It's one tile that fits perfectly into the bigger picture. So if you have your Bible, turn again to Luke's Gospel with me. We're going to look at chapter 23, verse 50, through to chapter 24, verse 35. And again, that's on page 1061. This passage divides into two. First of all, God acts. And then God explains his actions. At the beginning of the service, we read together the first part of this. So let's go back now and pick up at chapter 23, verse 50, where we started earlier this morning. God acts. Back in verse 46, which we looked at last week, Luke recorded Jesus' final words on the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Those words are a prayer of trust. Jesus has done his Father's will. He has laid down his life as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. And as he lays down his life on the cross, he trusts that his Father will not abandon him to the grave. But what we find immediately after the cross is a burial. And yet even in this, God the Father is showing himself worthy of his Son's trust. In the run-up to his death, Jesus has been subjected to all kinds of shame and dishonor. Spitting, mocking, beating, nakedness. But immediately after his death, he receives what amounts to a royal burial. Look at verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. Remember, Jesus was executed as a blasphemer and a criminal. Historians tell us people who died that kind of death were normally denied any kind of a burial. So the fact that Jesus is buried at all is pretty noteworthy. The fact that he receives such an honorable burial is a sign of God's favor on him. Verse 50 mentions that Joseph was a member of the council. That's the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership who condemned Jesus. And yet God uses a member of that group to give Jesus a royal burial. Verse 53 describes the tomb. It was cut in the rock and no one had yet been laid in it. 
This tomb was a cave with an entranceway that was covered with a big disc-shaped stone. Inside, the tomb would have been large enough to stand up in. There would have been stone benches cut out of the rock walls. And tombs like this were reused. So after 12 months, the bones were collected and they were put in an ossuary. That's a bone box. And that cleared the way for another body to be laid in the tomb. So the fact that Joseph owned one of these tombs and that it had never been used before points to how well off Joseph was. Look in verse 54. It was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. The woman who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Not only is Jesus laid in a well-to-do tomb, he's going to receive a royal anointing. The women prepare spices and perfumes. And then being devout Jews, they rest on the Sabbath. That's our Saturday. They'll come back and anoint Jesus on Sunday. At least that's what they plan to do. As we'll see, their plans didn't quite work out. But Luke's record of this burial does two things. It shows us that once the dishonor of the cross is over, there is only honor in store for Jesus. This burial is an early sign, it's a token, that God the Father is going to shower endless honor and glory on his Son. But this record of the burial also underlines the fact that a death has occurred. That seems like a very obvious point. But it's worth noticing because occasionally people argue that Jesus only fainted on the cross. But in verse 47, a Roman centurion, an experienced soldier, was convinced Jesus was dead. Later, Pilate released the body. Obviously, Pilate was convinced the job of execution was done. Then Joseph who was sympathetic to Jesus, hauled his body to a tomb and buried it, watched all the time by the women. For different reasons, all of these people would have made pretty sure that Jesus was dead. For the centurion and for Pilate, their careers hinged on them finishing the job that they started. And for Joseph and the women, They wouldn't have buried Jesus if there was any hint he was still alive. They would have been desperate to nurse him back to health. Both Jesus' executioners and his followers were convinced a death had occurred. It's stretching all credibility to argue that not one of them noticed he was still breathing. The only reasonable conclusion is that Pilate released And Joseph buried a dead body. The women are preparing a royal anointing for Jesus' body. They're going to honor him in his death. But they don't get the chance. They rest on Saturday and when Sunday comes, there's no body for them to anoint. Look at chapter 24, verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, The women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. 
They find the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. An empty tomb. Notice the way Luke puts it. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but they did not find what they expected to find, the body of the Lord Jesus. The point here is something that's going to be underlined for us over and over again in the verses to come. These followers of Jesus were not expecting a resurrection. A moment ago we noticed that sometimes people try and explain away the resurrection by saying that Jesus fainted. Another common attempt to explain this away is to say that, well, the disciples were so psyched up expecting a resurrection that at the slightest excuse, they jumped to the conclusion that Jesus had been raised. But in fact, the opposite is true. None of them were expecting a resurrection. They hadn't grasped Jesus' predictions about resurrection. And they knew enough biology to know that people do not, as a rule, rise from the dead. The disciples were not gullible people looking for any excuse to believe in resurrection. These women went to the tomb fully expecting to find the body of the Lord Jesus. Instead, they find an empty tomb. Now, in and of itself, an empty tomb proves nothing at all. There could be any number of reasons why a tomb is empty. An empty tomb does not automatically point to a resurrection. So then, why do we believe in resurrection today? Why do we base our confidence for the future in the belief that Jesus has gone before us and conquered death? Is our confidence based purely on an empty tomb? No, our confidence comes from the fact that not only has God acted, he has explained his actions. He has made himself clear. He didn't just leave us with an empty tomb and hope we'd figure out what happened. He worked to explain to us why the tomb was empty. Last week, one of our hymns said, God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. And that's what we find. In verses 4 to 35, God explains his actions. First of all, he explains his actions by Jesus' own words. Verse 4, while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, The woman bowed down with her faces to the ground. But the man said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Several times during his ministry, Jesus explained to his disciples that he would die and then be raised. But at the time he did that, Luke told us they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it and they were afraid to ask him about it. But now that this has actually happened, these two men, we later find out that they're angels, they're able to remind the women of Jesus' words. 
In the light of Jesus' words, the empty tomb should not be a surprise. It's not some bizarre development. It's not something out of the blue. It's the unfolding of God's eternal plan. Notice how the angel puts it in verse 7. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified and raised. That's exactly how Jesus put it. It had to be this way. If we think of the empty tomb by itself, in isolation, it's going to be a mystery to us. But if we think of it in the context of Jesus' teaching, it is not a mystery. Jesus is heaven's king. He's been at his Father's side since eternity past. He left heaven to do a specific job here on earth, to die for our salvation. But once that job was done, he would return to where he belonged. He would rise to reign. That's what he told the Sanhedrin during his trial. From now on, Jesus said, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. In other words, you will do your worst to me. But after you have done your worst, my Father will raise me to my rightful place at his side. If we will listen to Jesus' own words, the empty tomb is not a mystery. It's simply what's to be expected when heaven's king has completed his work. He doesn't stay dead. He rises to reign. Jesus' words provide a context for the empty tomb. They show us how it fits with his teaching. But Jesus' words are not enough to convince everyone. Look what happens next. Verse 9. When they came back from the tomb, that's the women, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Now that Judas is out of the picture, the twelve disciples are now referred to as the eleven. Verse 9 says, The women told them and the others all these things. So that includes reminding them of Jesus' words. And yet, verse 11 says, they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. One writer says about this verse, doubting Thomas was not alone. They all had trouble believing. They had trouble believing even when they were reminded of Jesus' words. Again, we're seeing that these followers of Jesus were not unscientific, unsophisticated people. They were not fanatics falling over themselves to believe anything and everything. They're reluctant to believe in the resurrection. But Peter, at least, is willing to check out the women's story. He finds the empty tomb, and having been reminded of Jesus' words, he goes away, verse 12 says, wondering to himself what had happened. Peter has been shown a few more tiles of the mosaic. 
He's been reminded that the resurrection fits with Jesus' words. But he's still wondering. But thankfully, God is not finished explaining his actions. He's going to show us more tiles of this mosaic. Verse 13. Now the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. These two disciples are walking away from Jerusalem. In other words, they don't expect any further developments. Even though they've heard the woman's report, they're not staying with the others because they think it's all over. They've watched Jesus die with their own eyes. He's gone. And the women's story has not changed their thinking. They can see no reason to sit and wait with the others in Jerusalem. But as they walk and talk, they're joined by a stranger. And before they discover who it is they're talking to, God is going to give them an even bigger context for understanding the empty tomb. They've already been reminded of Jesus' own words. Now they're going to be shown that God explains his actions by the Old Testament. Verse 17. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor in Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The stranger asks these two disciples what they're chatting about. And they are amazed at his question. You don't know what we're talking about? There's only one thing we could be talking about. Obviously, Jesus' death had been a big newsworthy event. They can't believe that this stranger could have missed it. And then we're reminded that these followers of Jesus are Jews. They knew their Old Testament. Jesus, in their eyes, was clearly at least a prophet. He was powerful in word and deed. And in fact, they had hoped he was more than a prophet. Verse 21, they say, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. 
At least they hoped that until he was crucified. The Old Testament had taught these disciples to look for a redeemer from God, one who would lead God's people forward, out of slavery and into freedom. Now, no doubt they're thinking mainly in political terms at this point. They want freedom from the Romans. But they may well also have thought of passages like Psalm 130, which says, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. These disciples may have had a sense that the Romans are not all they need to be redeemed from. They may have sensed their own slavery to sin. But whatever they had in mind when they spoke about a redeemer, they explained to this stranger that they had hoped Jesus would carry out this work of redemption. But now he's dead. They saw it happen. And the report from the women, the reminder of Jesus' words, and Peter's confirmation that the tomb was empty, none of it has altered their downcast state. They simply don't see how an empty tomb fits into the bigger picture. But look again how this stranger replies to them in verse 25. How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. These two disciples are familiar with the Old Testament. But they need to see how the Old Testament sheds light on the cross and the empty tomb. According to this stranger, all the scriptures, and in this context that means all the Old Testament, all the scriptures show that the Christ, God's chosen one, would suffer and then enter his glory. The Old Testament gives a context for understanding the empty tomb. We might think of a passage like Isaiah 53. We've read it several times in recent weeks. That Old Testament prophecy describes a suffering servant of God, one who would suffer and die for the sins of the world, one who would be assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And yet, after the suffering of his soul, he would see the light of life and be satisfied. We might think of other passages like that. But Jesus is saying more here than that a few isolated passages explain the empty tomb. There are two major Old Testament themes that help to explain how suffering would be followed by an empty tomb. First of all, the whole Old Testament sacrificial system explains the need for a perfect sacrifice. There were lots of other sacrifices, lambs and bulls slain on the altar, but they couldn't bring about forgiveness. They pointed, though, to the ultimate sacrifice who would bring forgiveness by his death. Just as those animals had to be without defect, so the ultimate sacrifice would have to be without sin. And yet the Old Testament teaches 
that we're all born in sin. So only God himself could die as a sacrifice in our place. The Christ would have to suffer. Then the idea of entering his glory is also explained by the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, there was the promise that God would send a king and his throne would be established forever. He would be given authority, glory, and sovereign power. His dominion would be an everlasting dominion. And so the Old Testament taught that God's king would never be abandoned to the grave. God would never let his holy ones see decay, Psalm 16 says. As Jesus was dying on the cross, the notice on his cross announced him to be the king. When God's king dies, we should not be surprised to find an empty tomb a few days later. When God anoints an eternal king, he will not abandon that king to death. He will raise him up to enjoy eternal pleasures at the Father's right hand. The entire Old Testament gives us a context for understanding the empty tomb. The empty tomb fits. It blends with the scriptures written long before Jesus came and died. God explains his actions by the Old Testament. But there's another way God the Father has explained the empty tomb. By the appearances of the risen Jesus. And we find one of them here in our passage. We'll see another one next week. But look at verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? These disciples have been given a context for this appearance before it happens. They've been reminded that through the angels and then the women, Jesus had foretold his death and resurrection. Then they've been shown how his death and resurrection are fully in line with the Old Testament. And now they're given another powerful help to understanding the empty tomb. The man who had been in the tomb is now eating at their dinner table. That's a big help in explaining why the tomb was empty. It was empty because the person in it had risen from the dead. Earlier, you may have noticed Luke's comment back in verse 16. We were told that as Jesus joined the disciples on the road, they were kept from recognizing him. It's only after they've been reminded of Jesus' words and then led through the Old Testament that we read finally in verse 31, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And surely there's an important application here for us. It's true that God may move someone to respond to the gospel message the very first time they hear it. 
God is able to do as he chooses. And sometimes he brings someone to see clearly after one simple gospel message. But that is not how he normally does things. That's why in this church we spend 95% or more of our teaching time going through the scriptures, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. It's not some project we've taken on just to see if we can cover all 66 books. It's not because of some fascination with obscure details from Israel's history. We teach the whole of Scripture because the whole of Scripture helps us see Jesus for who he is. The whole of Scripture is the context for understanding him. Understanding his birth and death and the empty tomb. Jesus' life and words blend perfectly into the mosaic that's the whole of Scripture. I know we often have a sense of urgency, and it leaves us thinking, let's just get to the point. My neighbors need to be converted. My kids are going to be leaving home soon. Let's skip the whole Bible stuff and just deal with the urgent questions. I know that we feel that temptation. But if we will think through this passage, what it shows us is that people are more likely to grasp and to be convinced by the central truths if we will put those central truths in their context. That's the context of the whole Bible. It's the whole Bible that makes the cross and the resurrection believable and understandable. I know a hit-and-run presentation of the gospel has its place. Dealing with topics has its place. But what bears most long-term fruit is presenting the entire mosaic of Scripture, the big picture. And missionary societies understand this very well. In the past, when missionaries went to an unreached people group, The old pattern was to go straight to Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection. But now, they start with Genesis. They show how sin entered the world, the consequences of sin. They go on to God's promise to Abraham through the system of Old Testament sacrifices, through God's promise of an eternal king. And finally, they get to the New Testament, And what they find is, at that point, the people they're teaching say, this is the fulfillment. This is the one we need. Jesus is the answer to our predicament. People need a context for understanding Jesus. And today, here in England, you and I live and witness in the equivalent of an unreached people group. People have no context for understanding Jesus. And we need to help them see that God has explained himself not only in just John 3.16. He has explained himself in the whole mosaic of Scripture. We're not doing anyone any favors by ignoring that mosaic. If we do, we're failing to give people a context in which to understand Jesus. 
That's what God did with these disciples. And we need to trust God enough and be patient enough to take the same approach. It's only by walking through the scriptures that we ourselves and then our friends and children are going to see Jesus for who he is. He's the one who crushes Satan's head. He's the ultimate sacrificial lamb. He's the promised eternal king. The good news about Jesus needs a context. So we need Genesis and Job and Ezekiel and Malachi and every other Old Testament book. They help us to see Jesus. They help us understand the Father who sent Jesus and then raised him back to life. They help us see who we are and why we need Jesus and how he is sufficient for our needs. We do no one any favors if we spend all of our time on just a couple of tiles in the mosaic. We need the whole story. And of course, today we're blessed to have more than the Old Testament. We have more even than Jesus' words. We have eyewitness accounts of his resurrection. We have an explanation of why downcast, unbelieving disciples were turned into joyful, fearless preachers of the risen Jesus. That change happened not because of an empty tomb. It happened because they met the man who had been laid dead in the tomb. They came to believe in the resurrection because they met the resurrected one. Look at the change we see here in verse 33. They had previously been described as downcast. Now we read, They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So in the meantime, Jesus has also appeared to Simon Peter. Next week, we'll look at another appearance. Why is Jesus doing this, appearing to his followers? Is this just for fun? No, one of the ways God the Father has explained the empty tomb is by the appearances of the risen Jesus. The New Testament gives us eyewitness accounts of those appearances. There are plenty of possible explanations for the empty tomb. But these eyewitness accounts give us every reason to believe that the actual reason the tomb was empty was because God the Father raised his son from the dead. We started by talking about paintings and mosaics in the Vatican Museum. And I hope that our passage has encouraged all of us to step back from the empty tomb, to see this one tile in its wider context. If you're not a believer, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I encourage you to look at that wider context. It will help you make sense of the empty tomb. And if you are a believer, then I encourage you to look again at the wider context. It will help you to see the reasonableness 
and the beauty of the empty tomb. It will remind you that the God of the empty tomb is the God of all of history. He's the God who is sovereign in the story of your own life as well. And he's the God you can trust. He sent Jesus to redeem us from slavery to sin and death. And he raised Jesus from death. Our Redeemer is alive. He's the guarantee that God has power over sin and death. And we're going to praise him now as we sing, I know that my Redeemer lives.